Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. In season three of the podcast, we are continuing to bring you interviews with creatives and craftspeople that we love. In between episodes, we're also telling short stories for you to cook or commute to. Join us as we delve into topics from history and design that inspire our artisanal collections. This week, we're telling some stories about a small but ubiquitous accessory that's preserved in fashion throughout history. I feel like scarves are one of those rarer items these days that you might find in your mum's closet or have handed down to you from a grandparent or relative, but they, they still are special little things. They are. Um, I'm here today with James Gilligan. Hi, James. Hello. <laughs> I actually really love scarves and... I think potentially one of my earliest memories was with one of my mum's best friends who gifted me a scarf when I was little and I still have it. But then obviously living overseas in Europe where scarves are used more because there's more cold weather in European cities than we have here. So my relationship to scarves bloomed overseas probably. What I didn't realise though until I started making the Cleopatra's Bling silk scarf with my friends who own a French brand called Soit Paris and we did a collaboration. The history of scarves go go way back and really it's sort of thousands of years and it's a lot more complicated than I ever knew before researching. Yes, well, the origin of the silk scarf is quite an, it's, it's quite an interesting story. So I'll take you back 200 to 300 years BCE where in China, uh, the Emperor Cheng was a fearsome military man He presided over a great oppression of anybody who opposed him or his philosophy. He ordered for books from alternative schools of thought to be destroyed and is even purported to have buried soldiers alive to prevent them from continuing to write and teach uh, methods and beliefs that weren't uh, completely in line with his. The soldiers in his army existed within a rigid hierarchy and it is the article of clothing that denoted their rank within this strict system that is the topic of today's episode. It's an item of adornment that today might be more associated with vintage film stars than Chang's soldiers, but that has existed long before both, with origins stretching back 5,000 years in China's history, the silk scarf. The production of silk is known as sericulture, is that how you say it? Yeah. And this industry's closely guarded knowledge and technique was a carefully held secret for hundreds of years. Then in the 6th century, the Emperor Justinian crafted a clever plan. He sent several monks as undercover spies to China, tasking them with stealing silkworm eggs and bringing them back to Constantinople. They did so and silkworm production spread across the European continent. Those sneaky Europeans. That's good. That's nice. Now that everybody, I mean, imagine if they didn't steal those silkworm eggs. Could have been a different story. Definitely. Even after silkworms were introduced to Europe, the incredible craftsmanship of the Chinese encouraged a bustling export of silks along what later became known as the Silk Road, or Seidenstrasse. There we are. Famous. The conditions along the series of interconnecting trade routes were severe, crisscrossing, craggy mountain paths and dry deserts. Nonetheless, a great variety of people lived along these routes, including the Uyghurs, whose women wore shaded dresses of ikat weave silk, Kyrgyz men with brilliant silk-lined robes, and Tekle Turkomans with dark, red-striped gowns. In the West, people of a trading or merchant class were often forbidden from wearing such luxurious materials with silk being reserved for nobles. But as aristocratic structures broke down and the Industrial Revolution took hold, 
silk began to be a more widespread and affordable material, and many who would not have been able to afford it beforehand adorned themselves in these bright, soft fabrics and began to incorporate them into their attire. That's nice. I suppose this is how all of these sort of these are expensive or... Weren't tulips really, like the price of gold mm. at a certain time as well? Mm. All the, yeah, I mean, it's, it always starts as a, a rare item that only the rich have and then it's sort of... Yeah, everyone wants it because it has some cultural meaning. Exactly. That's interesting. Also, like having spent a lot of time in Istanbul and working in the Grand Bazaar, there are those incredible sort of Silk Road-esque gowns. And that I really remembered that reading through this because, you know, all of the sort of ikat, which is that kind of silk print, mm. um, like kaftans and things. You can really find them really readily over there and they're just gorgeous. I also didn't know that was why it was Silk Road. I mean, I did, but didn't know it was from the Chinese having their secret stolen. Well, it's, it's very like, cool. you know, Russian caravan, the tea? No. It's like a smoky black tea, but it's like very smoky. Mm -hmm. Russian caravan is called Russian caravan because it got smoked in the caravans on the Silk Road and that's yeah. how it Okay. created like sort of by accident. So I think, yeah, all those traveling people who traded, you know, from all, well, all over, I think through Turkey and all the way to India, I believe. Hmm. And so many things would have been invented. Well, I just like that about the Silk Road being mm. basically, I mean, can you imagine the excitement of when those cultures were intersecting? Yeah, it would when have been East, incredible. When the East was was brand new yeah. when the, and you just go, Oh my lord! How did they come yeah. up with all the things they did? You don't. We'll never have that again. No, no, <laughs> we won't. And also now, because we have social media, we see stuff before we go there. Yeah, you see Whereas, all of it. Like yeah. you know, I know what I'm in for if I'm going to Mongolia or wherever. Yeah. Back then, they were quite literally discovering everything for the first time. And total wonder in things beyond, you know, your interest or you know, mm. people go to just follow what they want to do, go and you know, seek something out. But at that time, it's like, I guess you had to have an attitude of like, well, we go with the flow a bit more because yeah. we don't, we have no idea what's going to happen. And there's no, I don't know, just an attitude would have had to be really different in all those times when you're going to a new place, feeling like, oh, I can't just look up the best place to, totally. to have this thing. Do you think they needed some kind of form of a visa back then? Or how would they have crossed? No idea. From kingdom to kingdom. Yeah. How would that have it's worked? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, you think it's hard to get a green card. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't know. It might be, um, I think it would probably be all classist. Probably. Like, like where I you wonder just, like, if you're if a you peasant, you're not allowed to do anything. And if you're rich, you just pay some money and get a Take get a your nod. caravan on through. Yeah, something. Or if you've got goods or, I don't know, it would probably be a bit, I don't know. I can't imagine there was much documentation of this, but there no, might be. No, I'd like to look it up. Back to scarves. There were some really specific cultural uses of silk as the fabric became more widespread. In the late 1800s, a silk kerchief was added to the clothing of the capoeira practitioner. In addition to being a stylish and perhaps to one's opponent distracting accessory, the scarf at the neck was protective. In the late 19th century, when razors were widely used as weapons, the founder of Capoeira Regional claimed that the scarves were used to prevent gashes, but it was also a fashionable accessory to prevent the collar from coming into contact with dust and perspiration. The scarf formed a similar function in protecting the hair. 
Throughout most of history, in locations where washing hair was less common, a scarf would be used to protect the scalp from dirt and particles. This was remarkably effective, and so when the silk became more readily available, it was adapted to this end, and everyday women, and not only princesses and queens, could don silk instead of cotton, felt, or straw to protect their hair from the soot of the city. The fashion was set, and so although silk production was threatened in the early 20th century as war ravaged Europe, it remained a popular accessory amongst the middle classes. This popularity led to a certain ingeniousness on the part of the English scarf designers, who saw a chance to use the women of London as walking billboards to support the war effort. Fashion house Jack Ma produced propaganda scarves in the 1930s and 1940s that, despite how expensive they were, were emblazoned with slogans that reminded the local populace how tough times were. Salvage your rubber was an exhortation to put aside bits and pieces of that material that could be repurposed by the military. I'm looking at this one that says, is your journey really necessary? And I feel like that could be equally applicable to the lockdown realities it's of good. last year. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, it might be nice to find an, an original one of that. Yeah, that's I a, would wear it. That's a great... That's, I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. It's quite profound. <laughs> so after the war, Jack Ma returned to crafting luxuriously patterned scarves with motives closer to what one might expect, floral designs and holiday destinations. But the innate extravagance of the silk scarf could also lead to excess. Isadora Duncan was a world-famous American dancer who came to prominence in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. After growing up in California, she found fame at the age of 22 and spent the rest of her life living and dancing in Western Europe and the Soviet Union. Her signature accessory was a long billowing silk scarf. It also ultimately proved her downfall. On the night of September 14, 1927, Duncan was gifted a new scarf in the style she loved by her friend, Mary Desty. After an evening together, Duncan wrapped the present around her neck and set off in the car with her French-Italian chauffeur. Desty implored Duncan to wearing a cape, as the evening in Nice was unusually cold, but Duncan insisted on wearing only the scarf. As the car drove away, Duncan shouted to her, companions. Adieu, mes amis. Je vais à la gloire. Farewell, my friends. I go to glory. That's going to be my (laughs) salutation as I drive off from (laughs) now on. These were helped to be her last words. Desti saw the scarf tail flipping in the wind and went after the car, but it had already departed. That night on the Nice highway, the scarf's tail moving in the brisk air wrapped around one of the spokes of the car wheel and tossed Duncan from the car, killing her. Wow. Yeah, that was great. Wow. Sorry, everyone. Wow. Yeah, pretty dramatic. I've done that once on a motorbike with a petrol tank, with like a spare petrol tank. I had a strap, look, it was strapped to the bike. I was pulling into a caravan park and and I was just driving along and then someone sort of, I saw like a few people pointing at me and I was like, what the fuck? And I looked down and it's ripped the whole jerry can off the back of the bike and it's just in the spoke, just and I was like, well, yeah, that's. That's why you got it. Could that have been really dangerous? Of course. Yeah. If it, if it grabs a piece of clothing or whatever, yeah. it's like. <laughs> I'm a little bit scared of um, fans for that reason. <laughs> Getting yeah, too so, close. Yeah, don't ever get too close. Hair stuck. <laughs> so, it's so graphic because it's so, uh, it's a very violent and quick it idea. Just, Imagine how yeah. quickly she got thrown from the car. It would have been insane. Also, I'm always just thinking about this when I hear stories like that. And I'm like, this little silk scarf did that. <laughs> 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's got high tensile strength. The silk. Yeah, it's, it's a wild. strong. It's a strong material. It's crazy. I gotta get a scarf. Yeah. I should wear one. A full cravat. Now we've all we've got is Matt Preston. <laughs> <laughs> it's cravat. I'm going to bring you back a scarf from Turkey. Oh, do. I'd love that. A little... What else can you bring me back from Turkey? Well, so last time I went there, I found these really cool vintage um, kebab skewers that I got for lamb. Ooh. And they have like their sterling silver and then they have... Sorry, stainless steel. I'm going to draw I was making right. a mistake. Um, <laughs> stainless steel. And on the top, they've got little bronze animals and like cool figurines so they're great. just super ornate beautiful yeah wow. I should bring you something cooking related because that's one of your great passions I'm in everything about Cleopatra's Bling as a label is built around connection whether this be between the past and the present different cultures and practices or between our team and you at the end of each mini-sode I'll be answering a question submitted by you as a way of staying connected I want to share what I've learned through years of making jewellery, growing a brand, immersing myself in history and being taught by the artisans that train me in the art of working with gold, silver and gems. Cowboys and Indians asks, tell us about your stone setting process. Do you set them in wax or are they set in silver? The stone setting process is interesting because a lot of stones you can actually set directly in the wax and then cast the metal. However, we don't do it that way. We have a few different techniques. So initially I make the, all the designs out of wax to fit around the stone or stones in the case of multiple. And we send them off to our people in Florence, Istanbul, Jaipur or Bali. And they set the stones in the workshops that we have. So each sort of design has a different sort of technique. So claws is one story and then there's bezel setting, which is when there's no claws and it's sort of set under the metal. So they all require a different style of wax mold. So obviously before making the design and sending it off, I have to know which of the styles I'm going for. Certain stones also need to be set with sort of really specific guidelines like certain heat like opals for example they're very very porous and sensitive so you can't heat an opal up very much otherwise it'll just shatter essentially sapphires can be set you can resize a ring with the sapphire still in the ring it's not going to shatter it's like a diamond essentially in its hardness and then emeralds are extremely crumbly if they've sort of got like inclusions in the stone, you have to be really careful about the temperature, the way you set it. So that's why we work with extremely high level diamond setters in Florence who do all our setting for us because we don't want to risk any stone just falling out because it does happen if a, if a you know, the little prongs breaks through wear, the stone can easily fall out. So having someone that has 30 plus years of experience setting stones under a microscope by hand is like we're very lucky to be working with those people and I think it just does the jewellery justice. If you have any questions about jewellery making, creative practices or whatever you are curious about when it comes to Cleopatra's Bling, drop us a line at hello at cleopatrasbling.com with the subject line podcast question. You can also send us your question in the form of a voice memo that we will edit into the podcast. Next time on the podcast, the chefs are starting to request 
like specific items that we couldn't grow or you just couldn't get consistently foraged. So we went, why don't we start doing this? So we started with six little beds. From there, it was just two, three more beds here, two, three more beds there, and then we've got 30 beds now. Until next time, stay curious. Bye. Thanks, James. <laughs>